think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 103 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 104th episode, and our first episode of 2021. I'm Laura Carbado. I am Aiden Rainville. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone has enjoyed their, their holidays uh, in the first couple weeks of January. Uh, traditionally not a terribly busy time in politics, though a little mm. spicier than usual this year. No, I mean, I think it is hard to do what we do early in January when largely everyone is still unconscious. Or um, as it may be our, on vacation in the Caribbean. Yes, our, our institutions are sound asleep for the most or part. Hawaii or very, maybe selling a house in California. You know what I very, learned various is other places. a lot of people go to Hawaii every single year or travel to Hawaii, period, um, in a way I did not realize was the case until uh, the latest round of scandals broke. It's not, I mean, the thing is, is it's not uncommon if you're from the West Coast because it's sure like not, it's far, right? Like obviously Middle Pacific is, is not, you know, à la porte, but it's, uh, it's also, you know, you're, you're crossing most of the well, the whole continent if you're going to the Caribbean, so it's not like that's much closer anyway. So, yeah, no, for people out west, it's it's not really, you know, it's like kind of the tropical vacation of choice. But it wasn't exclusively people out west. It was... No, it wasn't. No. Sort of... No. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of central Canadians, upper Canadians, lower Canadians who managed to make the trek out nonetheless. <laughs> upper, upper, lower, left, right, all, all, the, all the, the various boundaries... Um, we will we will come back to that. I think we'll, we'll let that rest for now. <laughs> uh, we'll let it chill on the beach with a uh, a little uh, little tropical beverage, and, and we'll with a, we'll with a, with a nice nice umbrella in that pina Yes, we'll come to disturb its slumber later. Uh, first things, I want to talk about the recent uh, shuffle slash the final release of the mandate letters, like the little flying monkeys from uh, uh, Wizard of Oz. The well, the release of the supplemental mandate letters, I believe, yes. is how they were framed. Indeed. Uh, well, the first thing we'll start with the shuffle part of it is uh, Nefty Baines, who uh, for the last five years has been the Minister of Innovation, Science, and Industry, but not Economic Development, except that he was Economic well, Development. Well, the last was, two yeah. years he yes. was the Minister of ISI, which confused everyone because everyone thought. Has I said been renamed ISI? And the answer was no. It's no. just the styling of the ministerial title. Yes. The department will remain I said. Um, the minister will be called ISI, but he was previously not the minister of IS or ISI, which yes, is because he, he had economic. It's not a a uh, a term anyone uses ex- no. unless they're referring to the innovative super clusters initiative. <laughs> um. So make of that what you will. Indeed. Um, so I think it's fair to say that Baines is a Trudeau true believer. Uh, he has he was in on the ground floor of the, the Trudeau leadership project and has you know been a senior cabinet minister in a portfolio that I think uh, the liberals thought was going to be much more the cornerstone of their government than it perhaps has turned out to be. Uh, I think they thought they were going to do a lot more ribbon cutting on, um, you know, scale ups and various, you know, high tech innovation kind of stuff. Uh, there has not been as much of that at the center of the government as I think anybody would have liked in 2015. But all that to say that it's it, it's a portfolio in government that was very 
close to the stated priorities of, of the kind of medium long-term vision of the, the liberals for Canada. Um, and now the, the incumbent and the architect of that strategy, or at least, you know, probably one of the, one of the architects of that strategy is, is out the door. Uh, decided he is, he's done with politics, which fair enough. So um, let, yes. let me, let me add a few points here. Sure. Um, First, let's talk about his reason for leaving, um, yes. which by all accounts, so in, in his uh, resignation video, in his resignation social media post, um, as is now the case, as well as his interview with children, um, as well as sort of the backroom chatter, um, it is truly genuinely about family. Um, well, in, in part family, let's say 85% family as as much about family as any politician's resignation could possibly be. Um, and he sort of made the point about his talking to his daughters and not being able to see them through sort of formative years, etc. Um, so, I mean, I think and people always go to scandal and always default to scandal in politics, but I, I don't expect that to be the case. Um, no, he, you know, he's going to go run for the OECD for their, their super clusters. <laughs> initiative <laughs> the oecd super hyper cluster initiative as it's now yeah, mega um so i i don't think it's that um there was conversation not too many months ago about navdeep baines wanting the finance minister role um which i think is firmly out of grasp and may have played into his decision making process a little bit i mean he's been a guy wed to the ISID portfolio for five years uh, with finance as perhaps where he was interested in going, um, there weren't that many promotions available to him. Yeah, uh, I said is a tier A or a tier B and three quarters sort depending of on the government. Yeah, department. In the, in, um, in this government, it was very much a height. Like it was it was early inner on for sure. Yeah, well, yes, early that's I think. On. They kind of got derailed onto the stuff they had to do rather than the stuff they wanted to be doing, uh, well, which is it kind of explains the the meteoric rise of, of Christopher Freeland. Um, but yeah, yes. in part. So let me let me give a a five year history of ISED. ISED came in as a portfolio, you know, rebranding industry Canada um, as innovation, innovation, innovation being the keyword, right? Um, the f- the two words that jump to mind when I think I said, and I've thought about I said for the past five years is SIF and superclusters. SIF yeah. being the strategic innovation fund, which was essentially um, a big pot of money of they, they took a bunch of existing sort of funding mechanisms within the industry Canada portfolio. Um, once for aerospace, once for industry, et cetera, put them all under one heading of SIF Um and basically funneled every stakeholder who was looking for money to do anything vaguely industrial um, under that umbrella. It was a fund that very quickly became oversubscribed, and then the government used it to selectively dole out money to uh, organizations that fit sort of its political agenda or organizations or initiatives that fit with its political agenda, environmental focus, industry focus, whatever it was. Um, and then it was also used to create, um, sort of slush funds in crisis times. Uh, well, yes, the, I was going to say that the sort of pandemic reimagining of SIF 
has Pandemic been kind of interesting to watch. Reimagining is actually the the sort of second iteration I would point to. The first iteration of that was actually around the steel and aluminum tariffs. Right. Um, that SIF was reworked to create a fourth stream around steel and aluminum tariffs um, to support the companies that were getting screwed over by the American measures there. Yes. You um, mean the, the hardworking Canadian families that make up their workforce, of course. Yes. That, that's not the exactly companies, right. God, no. It's not about the companies. That's exactly right. Well, SIF is it, always about the companies. <laughs> no, it's about, it's about hardworking, middle-class Canadian families and those working hard to, to join them, you know. Um, and so SIF has bounced around. Um, they put in, a, I believe, a floor of $5 million or $10 million. Yeah, that's the thing. Is It's kind of the... Um, it, it's it's like the, the, the big boys table when it comes it, to, it to big It became that yeah. because there was basically... There was smaller it was an grants easy way to put on, a filter yeah. on it, I think. Yeah. And their inclination was to say, let's up the ante. Table stakes are now 5 or $10 million. We're not dealing with, you know the mom and pop shop wants new printer sort of thing was yeah. their Gillen way. Weston and wants new refrigerators is going to have to go somewhere and, else. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and there was a fund for that. There was a fund for that. Um, so that that's sort of the the five-year story of SIF. Um, the other, and, and, you know, it became a focal point of ISED because it became the clearinghouse for so many ass by stakeholders. Um, the other piece of it is... ISI, which uh, the Innovative Superclusters Initiative, which was very similar in many regards, in the sense that you know there's a lot been written about supercluster. I I would refer yeah. you to some of Paul Wells's writings in particular. Um, it was purported to be a you know about the best things for the economy, based off sort of a mini Silicon Valley model. Ultimately, it worked out to be five regional superclusters that just happened to fit the political dynamics of the country very conveniently for the government. Um, they took a lot of heat about a year ago. The department pushed back. Uh, this was based on the uh, privy. Was it a year ago or was it less than a year ago now? Oh, the uh, no, this was, yeah, this was only a few no, months ago. This was like in the yeah, fall. It was, no, it wasn't a year ago. It was in... February, March, I think, just Are as Are you talking pandemic. about the PBO report? Yes, I am. That was, was much was, more recent than that. No, it was February, March. It, it was like winter, spring 2020. Um, you're looking October at October 6, 2020, yeah. <sighs> really? God. Yeah, it was way more recent than that. Yeah, I remember because I was working on it here. <laughs> and I, I uh, yeah, I thought it was much earlier. Anyways, um, so yeah, PBO report. Oh, you know what I'm thinking of? The PBO report came out, but it was based on data from that period, from prior to that period. Yeah, I think that's right. So I said pushback data on it Data shared at by the, the government as of March 6, 2020. There you go. And I said actually pushback very vocally. They got their supercluster presidents out in the news. Um, they made a new government superclusters page with more up-to-date data. Yes. And, and just to be... Um, trying just, to just, poke at the weaknesses of the PBO. Yes. And, and it's worth saying that what the PBO basically found, in the long and short of it, is that the the really salient finding was that the multiplier that the government was claiming, which was, I believe, like a factor of 25 times, uh, mm. was probably a bit off. I don't know if that was 25 times. I believe that's what the government was claiming. Uh, let me just look up in that report. Yes. Uh, initial spend for this initial spend to lead to an increase of GDP of $50 billion implies a multiplier effect of 25. Okay. Um, yes. And, and I think as Paul Wells put it at the time when this came out was 
if you had a way for a government dollar to become 25 government dollars or 25 economic dollars, you would put like it's sort of one of those like why don't they build the whole plane out of the black box thing like you would put all of your money into the thing that turns your dollar into 25 dollars um, yeah which is like Let, so why stop at a billion right so i mean uh, i mean we can talk about multipliers one of, one of my very first political experiences ever was in relation to the alberta arts community and a and a political debate in alberta um i'm guessing you were was, anti no, I wasn't anti. I was <laughs> there with a candidate who was to speak to the arts, but went a little off the rails about the secret agenda that she had for the arts that the other um, part that she couldn't tell anyone because the other parties would steal it. Yeah, this um, was Wild Rose candidate, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, but these were, right. Let me say, these were not the lines that I had prepared about uh, our arts platform. Mm-hmm. Um. The long and the short of it that I remember from that was something they were talking about like a seven or eight times multiplier. All of these industries come to you um, in government and elsewhere with these multipliers. They, they have the golden goose. And, and, and all yeah, they have to do and is And everyone just... likes looking at these multipliers. Sometimes they hire someone like the conference board or whoever it is to come up with a multiplier. And the multipliers are always the fuzziest of imaginable math. Um multipliers are the number one thing I'm perhaps the most skeptical of in sort of economic terms when you're, I think when if you're you, if, dealing you know, in and around government. Multipliers are great and they're nice if you can get them precise. I, I'm actually reading a book right now about um, the the wasted opportunity of the, the financial crisis and the Obama stimulus and how they were just like, these are like the smartest, well, okay, let's put it this way. They are the most <laughs> uh, consensus, well-regarded economists in the economist community. Uh, the Larry Summerses of the world, sure. and they just they just absolutely don't like they they got it completely wrong um, by like an order of magnitude, and it, all that to say that it's an imprecise art, and I think if you're talking about a multiplier where you're talking about multiple zeros in the percentage, I would be fairly skeptical most of the time. If you're telling me you know twenty percent, thirty percent where it makes sense, you know, and you can kind of construct a but it's, case it's for that. Never, like, okay. it's never that. It's but no one never, comes to you with you're going to see a, a says, 20% return. They're, you're going to see no. you're going to see 30 times your your money come back and it's like Yeah, oh, or like seven know? or <laughs> seven or nine times often yeah. it's phrased in terms of economic impact. Yes, if there's more um, than one zero and that basically. becomes very tenuous yeah. in terms of how it's calculated and how many you know, degrees of economic circulation that dollars are going to take. Like, oh, this dollar for the arts is going to pay for a mechanics, you know, is going to pay for a car to be repaired, and that mechanic is going to do this. And then you sort of track the dollar for 10 generations, and it just doesn't make any sense at all anymore um, in, in real terms, especially compared to sort of a, a base case of how the dollar would be used. At, we're getting we're getting kind of far off the super cluster. We are. To say that <laughs> yes. Multiplier. The only other thing fuzzy. I was going to say is one of the other areas where Wells, in particular, has been hammering the government has been in relation to the uh, infrastructure bank and the multiplier that was used initially to justify the infrastructure bank. Yes, and how that multiplier from, from has shrunk over time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, which uh, oof, tough. Um. But, okay, so superclusters, superclusters, again, became sort of one of these clearinghouses where every um, stakeholder that knocked on ISED's door, they said, can you do something superclustery related? 
Um, and it turned out a lot of people could, so it became sort of a magnet drawing in tons and tons of uh, people. And, you know, if you talk to the people in the superclusters now, I think they would be able to make a reasonably compelling case that they're off the ground and they're running. Yeah. Um, but, unfortunately, there's not a ton of transparency about how the superclusters, what they're doing, how they're being run, aside from yeah, the push that they did in response that... to the PBO report. Yeah, it's important to say, too, that they're not, it's not a conventional kind of government program. It's, it's basically they have formed, like, consortia of, like, industry, um, academic groups, um, you know, researchers, and sort of the, the idea is that they're kind of self-governed uh, in a kind of a collegial way. Um, and there's not, like, a direct, you know, government line in, in the same way that there is for SIF. I mean, I think it's fair to say that government is still reasonably hands-on with what's going on in, in their, you know, big project, which, you know, which I think it's, it's undeniable. The Supercluster Initiative was a big political project for this government. Um, but yes, it's not quite the same thing. Um, anyway, to circle back to Navdeep Baines. <laughs> yes, because because this has been 16 minutes on him. Um, the only thing I was going to add was sort of a, a brief history of Baines's career. Um, it's a bit of a bifurcated career. Um, he was in politics. I had it in front of me here a minute she ago. He was first elected in 2004, lost in 2011, was reelected in 2015. Yes, lost in 2011 to Eve Adams. Um, yes. Conservative a, a, wonder a, a, a bright but short career in conservative politics. <laughs> I think he also lost, lost to Eve Adams at the municipal level at one point. Um, but more importantly, as you alluded to, Navdeep Baines was at the... Uh, what's the ski lodge just outside of Ottawa? Trombla. The, uh, no, not Trombla. It was Trombla in this case. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. No, I'll, I'll give you a second to Google it. Mont Montebello. It was Montebello. It wasn't. It was. The Montebello. Okay, we're gonna, you, you're gonna. You're gonna feel silly when I finish this Google. Uh, we're gonna find out. Oh, three day retreat at Mont Tremblant, my friend. What was it? Yeah, sorry. Piss. Yeah, sorry. Hate, okay. hate to break it I'm, to you. I thought it was Montebello. <laughs> You're open I thought it was Montebello. Today. I've never been to Trombla. I've yet to go to Trombla. Seven years in, um, thought it was Montebello. Um, yes, the the three day the three day retreat that launched um, Trudeau's leadership bid, or that sort of he centers as the ultimate deciding point for his leadership, yes. where he brought in, you know, the the names of people that were there are names that are not unfamiliar to anyone who follows Ottawa politics. Um, the Katie Telfords and the uh, Jerry's butt, Jerry's butts. Um, who's the digital guy who did Canada Twenty Twenty? Um, oh, Pitfield. Ha Pitfield, yeah. Um, so that old gang. So he he's been in from the you know day one, um, and this is sort of where my critique of his career comes in, and perhaps most poignantly. Um, is that he is a man who had a lot of political capital in this government. Um, and it's not clear what he ever spent it on. Um, the influence of his department seemed to wane with the government's changing political priorities um, from yeah, 2015. Kind of, yeah. Once it became Trump containment, NAFTA, all this other stuff. Yeah. Like we heard less and less about it. Yeah, the major projects got off the ground and then it sort of seemed to be petering out and there was, you know, 
some peripheral, I mean, not peripheral if this is your space, but peripheral privacy legislation that was on the burner um, and came out just before he, uh, the Canadian digital charter stuff is what I'm and referencing. It's worth saying two, two years after like people have been clamoring for it very, very uh, ardently. Yes, but ultimately it landed with a bit of a a soft thud as yes. it was during COVID. Well, it's one of the first, as, as we've noted on the podcast, one of the first pieces of major non-COVID legislation. Yeah. Um, but he's not there to shepherd it through, presumably. Um, well, sorry, no, he's not. He'll still be an MP, but he's no longer the minister. Um, right. So he hands that off to François-Philippe Champagne or Frankie yes. Bubbles, as he is sometimes affectionately referred to. Is he affectionately referred to as that? Have you never heard that expression? I've, I've heard it from you, but I always assumed it was a you thing. No, it is It is not exclusively a me thing. I can okay. confirm that. I should have figured and it was clever. It was very fitting, particularly while he was at GAC. As yes, the, uh, that the would make sense. Well, the crystal, the, the holder of the crystal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Famously. Um, yeah, well, I, okay. I, th- I think that will we'll do it for our political obituary of Navdeep Bain's uh, Gone But Not Forgotten and uh, leaving a lot of political capital unused and perhaps feeling himself increasingly sidelined in a government that uh, does not seem to have his priorities where his are anymore. Is yeah, that fair well, to say. Yeah, I, I think I think that is a, a very concise way to sum it up. And, I'd rather and, take twenty minutes to talk and, about it, but we, yes. we could have just said and, that. And with the cooling off period, that hopefully will leave him plenty of time with an active liberal government uh, and you know very very lucrative work in the private sector. So a cooling off period of two years because he's minister and a lobbying ban period of five years, but yes. and that many two years people seem to find their way around lobbying bans very trivially applies so. to organizations with which he had direct and significant dealings in his last year in office. Yes, which is a um, lot because he talked to everybody. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and, and as we've noted, in the finance portfolios are the two worst ones. They're, they're really killers for this. that. But yeah. they're and also the ones in which you're likely to find an industry group that's happy to work around your your ban. Yes, and as we've noted in the past, uh, the standard for this is if it was significant to the group that you met with, which makes it functionally impossible to, or makes it rather very easy to unknowingly fall into non-compliance with the, the statute. Yeah. Yes, uh, this is the, the Taves discussion, but yes. yes. Which we discussed in an episode long, long ago. There's uh, like five people who've well. listened to all the episodes, and God bless you if you're one and of them. To, yeah, to all of you, we, we salute you and your endurance. <laughs> um, yes, so to taking his job is, uh, as, as Etienne said, François-Philippe Champagne, who has been, I think it's fair to say, a rising star in this government. Uh, ever since he joined cabinet um, in sort of progressively senior roles. Um, so he I, ends his... Sh- okay, yeah. I think that's go, maybe go a it. tiny <laughs> bit too strong of language. Um, I, I just don't know I would call him a rising star. I don't know that his star has... That he's ever had the opportunity, I think is what it comes down to. Um, to really distinguish himself. He's managed to move yeah. his way up the ladder. He, Let's he say started, a competent position player. Sure. He's managed, uh, I believe he started in uh, uh, parliamentary secretary to finance, and then he got international trade, and then he yeah. got foreign affairs. And so he's very obviously progressed his way up. Um, but in none of the roles has he been given a particularly large mandate or mandate <laughs> Um, absent, <laughs> <laughs> absent of interference from the center or from uh, an a 
a looming Christia Freeland, uh, Katamari yes, Damasi, who yeah, has swallowed said, up he, his portfolio he and kind sort of, of taken him along for the ride. He sort of moved in Christopher Freeland's wake for much of this government, and I think this is the first time that he is not doing that, so it will be interesting to see. And he has a business background. Uh, that, that Inter- is international pretty... business, based in yeah. the UK, if I'm not mistaken, for Correct. some large company I'd never heard of. Right. Um, the people I know in liberal circles who know him really well have and these are Quebecois liberals have reverence for the guy um they really like him they find him very sociable very personable you know the person who's going to invite you for dinner at his house and entertain you for hours um so all good traits to have if you're um, a liberal yes someone people <laughs> someone people traits. enjoy working for and someone people sort of become uh enamored with and really respect um, but that being said, during his time in government, explicitly in his portfolios, there I haven't seen many moments where he's been given the opportunity to shine. Um, he so did we'll damage see. control somewhat on the trade file post. Uh, he got left behind, left off the plane um, on TPP negotiations, if I recall correctly. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was sad. <laughs> uh, um, but that's really one of the only instances where I can think of where he's sort of been given the hard task. Um the conversation as to whether or not I, uh, global affairs, which is in everyone's category of sort of a tier one portfolio, but to, really I isn't. said, which yeah, is kind of always a tier one portfolio, is yeah. a fair conversation to have, but it's not one I would, you know, waste time on. Um, I would global say affairs has not been a tier government. one portfolio yeah. under this government, um, yeah. especially not during COVID because all your travel perks are cut. Um, so it's actually probably a miserable portfolio to be in. Probably, yeah. You're just hanging out with gag people all day. Sorry, gag people listen to this podcast. (laughs) I know there are at least a few. Sorry. Very nice Um, cushions. Yes. Um, enjoy, enjoy the crystal. Um, yeah, so we will, I think it's, it's a, a promotion that finally takes him out of someone else's shadow. So we will, we will see what he does with it. Um, yeah, get to watch him stand on his own two feet for once. Yes, and speaking of taking a small step for mankind, uh, or a small step for man, uh, someone who's taking a big step for mankind is Marc <laughs> Garneau moving to the, uh, well, uh, François-Philippe Champagne's old job at Global Affairs. The amply named uh, Global Affairs. Yeah, Global Affairs, well, which actually is very limiting for him. He's, he's not used <laughs> to just being limited to this terrestrial sphere, so... I real like he's been a no drama player in, in transport transportation, which is not a file I follow closely, so I, I can't really comment on his performance. Uh, he seems like a no drama kind of guy generally. I don't know. Um, the most the most interesting thing I've heard about transportation in the past several years is that apparently it's a perennial issue that GTA MPs want to shut down Pearson overnight. Ah, um, uh, yes, because of the people who live there. Because of airplane noises. And it's like, <laughs> yes, are we a G7 sense. country or are we not a G7 country? Yeah, you kind of got to go there. Because if the we seven, are, the seven our largest city for the needs airport. planes. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of important. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't really have much to say about him, to be honest. I can make a couple more space jokes. I think you guys get it. You know. <laughs> yeah. His auto pen is going to be the Canada arm. I don't know. <laughs> that's actually not bad yeah i thought so yeah um and not a lot of people aren't familiar with an auto pen an auto pen is the little machine arm that signs documents yeah for every, everyone who has worked in a minister's office probably laughed really hard at that joke and no one else did um yeah learning to use an auto pen was really fascinating a little little robotic arm that signs documents for you and 
I mean, I haven't heard a ton about it, but apparently, I mean, there's processes. I mean, ministers' offices are in charge of coming up with processes for using it responsibly with, you know, written sign-off from their minister, et cetera, et cetera, in some form or another, approving the use of the auto pen. So the auto pens are actually locked in their own little room with like a security key and stuff like that because of, you know, the significance of being able to put the minister's signature on something. Yes. Um, and I have not seen a lot of, uh, I don't know that there's a lot of jurisprudence around the, whether or not an auto pen signature is in fact the exact same as a real as well a, i mean uh, and that that takes you know, us down to the alchemy of, signature. of what truly is in a signature that makes it so special about which there was a great planet money episode some years back uh which i recommend uh, listening to if you can find it um because really it's kind of like, bell. no it's a good one um because yeah i mean like who, who's to say right like what like my signature is basically just a illegible scrawl so what what gives it special power to speak for me when other things don't, you know? Exactly. That, that's um, stuff. All right, we're 30 minutes in. Let's put the cabinet shuffle on hold. We could say more yes. about some of the other things, but let's... There's, a new, guy, there's think... a new guy taking transport uh, who is a GTA MP. Uh, so uh, yes. we'll see if he shuts down the airport or not. Omar Algebra. Yes. Um, don't have a lot to say about him as of today. I got nothing. Um, I got nothing. Sort of yeah. reasonably lower key team player um we'll see how he does indeed we shall um the other thing that people are talking a lot about is we, we did not have a fall election turned out uh, nor did we have an election oh, wait. no election. you're skipping you're skipping mandate letters oh mandate letters sorry i thought we'd kind of okay whatever mandate well, letters. Le go ahead okay mandate letters were two minutes two minutes of mandate letters go ahead get started clock's ticking uh mandate letters uh you know much awaited um they landed on Friday, um, as they often do. For some reason, mandate letters always seem to come out on Friday, unless I'm imagining that, um, which is always strange. Uh, they landed on Friday. They were styled as supplemental mandate letters in addition to the priorities that were in the existing mandate letters. Um, broadly, there wasn't anything that you would really not have expected in these ones, which is actually somewhat different than standard mandate letters. Um, these ones recycled a lot of lines from the speech from the throne or the fall economic statement. And there wasn't anything that actually really, really jumped out at me as new or surprising having reviewed, I don't know how many of them there are, like 38 or something, having reviewed 30 out of now, 38 of them. Yeah. Um, so not a ton to say about them. Good to have them out, you know, instrumental. <laughs> we have been joking about it for months. <laughs> load stars to the civil service in terms of what their priorities are. Um, but nothing astonishing. What, you know, the only thing that I, I sort of noted was that if you compare the ministers of state to the actual ministers, the ministers of state and what they've been put in charge of this go round, it is really stunning that Mona Fortier, the... Uh, the yes, number of things on her priorities list are a fraction, a, a very, very literal, you know, a one one hundredth of what is on Christia Freeland's agenda. Well, I mean, middle class um, prosperity, man, is a big job, but, you know, it's just Yeah, it's I vibes. think there's four things in her letter and none of them are making the middle class more prosperous. It's um, about vibes, dude. It's about vibes. <laughs> so let's leave mandate letters there because at, at the end of the day, they seem to be the least important thing on this on this uh, agenda. I tend to agree. So, as you guys or may itinerary. have noticed, we did not have an election last year. Uh, we were very convinced at one point that there was going to be one. 
uh, around the opposition motion, opposition day motion to request um, a bevy of documents from the government relating to its COVID response. But we also haven't heard the end of that saga, have we? No, we have not. Uh, Those documents Christmas, were due. Yeah, sure. They were in translation. And yes, which is a big job. They're so. somewhere still in that purgatory as far as we know as far as we know yeah so who knows and yeah we certainly thought that that was the best pretext that the government could have had possibly going into a fall election i guess they opted not to roll the dice on that um i guess the timing of it would have been awkward because it would have been you know election day would have been pretty much right around when cases were starting to jump again so well they didn't know that at the time well i mean they probably could have intuited that that was not unlikely yeah I, I I give less credit there. I, mean, I don't know. I think that probably would have been a, one of the factors that they weighed in making a decision on whether or not to do that. Because it did seem like they were gearing up for it with uh, uh, two of their more serious ministers coming out and saying, like, this will fundamentally impede the ability of the government to do its job. Uh, which seemed like they were basically saying, if you do this, we're going to we're gonna pull the plug on this. Uh, but yeah, they ended up not. So we are now talking, I, I think the sort of buzz in Ottawa is we're talking at, like, we're talking about a late spring election. Um, well, spring. So I guess. there's a there's a window there. Two 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 and a half lines of thought. Um, the budget is the obvious flashpoint. Um, you know, there's From several reasons. Perspective, yeah. There, well, yeah, there's several reasons. One, it's a natural confidence vote. Um, two, there's the question of a mandate. Um, and as to, you know, the liberals are now very much in a different world than when they were elected. Yeah. Um, so if they want the pretense of a mandate, I note the man, the question of a mandate is not a recognized West, Westminster parliamentary anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's merely a concept we all seem to operate under for convenience sake. Well, it's a sort of political concept of democratic legitimacy, right? Like, is a government yeah, but it's that, not... that ran on this really entitled to do x without really like a fresh sure but westminster types will get out the uh the black rod and start clubbing you yeah really over the head people who make a personality out of being really into rule books are very (laughs) concerning i I think that that's there's something deeply wrong with you if that's what you're about please get a hobby better hobby better hobby i I should i should be careful i love the rules you know this by, by the way Etienne, i i'm gonna i'm gonna just like go back on what i just said but westminster i i knew you were gonna correct me on that i was waiting <laughs> well for why it. did you make the error then As i i was waiting for it um no <laughs> you, i see book... you've activated my trap car <laughs> <laughs> rule book people are very good and i appreciate rule book people and they are very smart diligent people and i uh, i deeply respect them um back to what we were talking about uh so yes there's the natural flashpoint of budget the asterisks um and the downside to budget election believers um is that the pandemic situation yeah that Um, whole chestnut seems like this government i mean this government you know we don't know it uh with certainty but likely it was one of the reasons they avoided it in uh the late fall was around the pandemic situation, as you just insinuated. Um, it is an order of magnitude worse today. I don't know what it'll look like in two months. I'm guessing not dramatically better, perhaps even worse. Um, we will just be getting out of, I'm sure, various rounds of lockdown. 
um, depending where you are in the country. It, it doesn't seem like the optimal time to run an election, which has led me to this formula. Um, uh, the formula is we will see an election at the soonest point at which pandemic considerations are not incredibly salient yes basically like you can the, sum it up you can sum up a, the, in this the earliest rhyme. moment in which public health is uh permitting yeah you can sum it up in this rhyme if inside you may get a beer an election there will be near you <laughs> 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 will go with that lovely rhyme that you've created um which reminds me of a saying re-conservative leadership that I have always felt to hold true. I have yet to put it into a quippy rhyme. Um, but it's that the conservative leadership will always be won by the most right-wing, not-crazy person. Blue sky at um, night, leader's delight. Blue <laughs> crazy <laughs> sky need. in the morning, you voter don't need it. warning. You don't need it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, which, you know, exp handily explains why O'Toole won, uh, McKay lost, and Sloan lost. Yes. Um, and and I, lost. I, I think is a very good um, a very good description of how those dynamics played out. Um, so myself, I find myself in the, uh, the later into the early summer, maybe summer. I don't know how many summer elections we've ever had, but... I don't think anyone to... really wants a summer election because it will be absolute hell for turnout. Well, but this year on the non-travel year, why would it Well, be? that's the thing. Is it will it be a non-travel year this year or will everyone be booking trips out of the country? Well, in, in June, June like June, yeah. July, I don't think we're at public vaccination yet according to the, uh, the no. timeline. Yeah, I think I think let's just say there's so. a, lot, a lot of unknowns, but like I, I, generally speaking... People do not want to have elections when everybody is maximally tuned out. Well, yes. If you're the incumbent, perhaps you do. Who knows? I mean, it has not been the precedent in in the, I like the past that I can remember. Well, yes. And how many of those past election years were mid pandemic? No, admittedly, it's a, we're in kind of uncharted waters here. But yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think it's it's unlikely. I would so, expect yes. it before the summer. The, the natural inclination is to probably be before the summer rather than the fall or rather than midsummer, but who knows? Any, anything is possible. Um, so it's either when the pandemic has significantly ameliorated as soon as possible or with budget. Um, yeah. But if it's a complete shit show. It's kind of whichever is know. sooner, yeah. Though it's likely to be the pandemic or the, yeah, the pandemic stuff. Or whichever is later. Well, well the budget will absolutely be sooner. Yes, whichever um, is later. Yeah. So, T TBD on that, but that is very much the buzz in Ottawa. Um, you know, platform processes are underway for, I would say, all. I can't speak for the Bloc Quebecois. Um, so, I'm going to say all three major parties. I'm going to promote the NDP into the top three. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Real, um, real, uh, <laughs> real, real generous of you. <laughs> Um, the liberal one, if it is around the platform, there isn't, or sorry, if it is around the budget, there isn't going to be a platform process because the platform it will, will just be run the on the budget. Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's, uh, you know, it's on the onus of the other two parties to come up with platforms where the liberals are going to be using the vast tools of the civil service to produce their own, uh, platform for them. Yes. Um, which is always handy. Well, always well, nice well, to have. One of the perks of government for sure. 
yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, we, we all look forward to what will doubtless be a, you know, a, a very nice, fun, really great election that everyone will enjoy. Yes, I'm sure all the political staff who went from election hell to COVID hell to now election again will be very thrilled. All I of, mean, all of the especially, lovely... yeah, if you lost your job after the last election, too, uh, you, you will have done election hell, unemployment hell, <laughs> COVID hell, and then election hell again, which uh, is, is great. That's the only upside to this is maybe this election... No one travels, and it's like a work-from-home election. Yeah, um, I mean, like we'll you, see. <laughs> if you typically, like, traveled and what billeted in someone's, you know, house um, for 30 or 40 or 60 days or whatever it was in 2019, I don't know if you'd be doing that again this year. Um, yeah, we'll see. You know, with the lack of in-person events. so Indeed. No, it's going to be... Uh... It will be a bit of an interesting one for sure. Um, yeah, that'll probably that'll probably do us on the elections there. Uh, the last thing we want to talk about is uh, well, actually, why don't we why don't we go back to that that question we we left uh, sipping its its coconut drink uh, with the little umbrella in it on the beach there and give a give a real stink eye. Which oh, is have we moved the, have we moved through the agenda that fast? Let we me, have let me actually, in nice twenty minute chunks. It's perfect. Let me let me actually just add. One... You, you, you gotta you gotta do it <laughs> no there's just i think one salient piece and i think we'd be remiss if we didn't know which is sort of the tenure of the discourse between the conservatives and liberals right now um around stuff happening in the country to the south of us um no we don't talk dynamic about that, we don't talk about shaped... that's the, that's the whole that's the whole like selling value of this podcast is we don't acknowledge the existence of a country south of the border it just it's the big waterfall the the yeah i, mean, I I'm, that's not what i'm talking about i'm just talking about the liberals and the oh mexico party. okay yeah what's yeah, going on mexico? that's that's right <laughs> the the here it's there it's going to be very very Mexican very contested dynamic. midterm elections this year oh is is manlo going to hold on i i don't know Amlo. Well, yeah, he's president. He's oh, did I say Manlo? Manlo. You, you said Manlo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm terrible with names. We all know this. Yes. Um. No, it, I mean, the biggest single challenge confronting the conservatives today, and I mean, there was somewhat of an acknowledgement of this in terms of O'Toole's recent Facebook posts, uh, Facebook and probably every other platform, um, except for Parler, maybe. Um, <laughs> he doesn't. Is was, apparently the account on there is not actually him. The I mean, the liberals certainly have a huge opportunity to try and ramp up the discourse around tying the conservative party to Trumpism in the United States. And B, I can promise you, they are going to take every conceivable opportunity to make that connection as tight. Um, as they possibly can in Canadians' minds. And it is going to be a very real tension in the Conservative Party in terms of how to navigate that challenge, um, how to effectively distance oneself from Trumpism, point blank. And the latest sort of flashpoint on that was today around Derek Sloan and the, revela and the revelation by Press Progress that some aforementioned white supremacist um had donated to him in the leadership um and so that has led to very firm and swift action 
Um, I think booting him out. I the the last thing I said saw was uh, yeah, this was literally happening right before we started. Recording. Yeah, was he won't be allowed to run again? But I did not see definitively whether or not he'd be in, removed from caucus immediately. Um, I'm I'm sure that will be public information one way or the other by the time anyone is listening to this. Um, so just that sort of uh, a microcosm of the fights that are going to be playing out between the liberals. And well, the and I think it's actually interesting. It's interesting to take that particular example because there have been points at which it might have been not beyond appropriate to kick Derek Sloan out of caucus. Sure. Uh, and this time where he received a donation under a pseudonym by a guy who was a neo-Nazi. Not, not quite a pseudonym. Uh, well, to be fair. it was and let's a say, initialed first name. Yeah, but like to someone looking at that on a spreadsheet and that person, you know, presumably not being Derek Sloan himself. Um, well, no, often often MPs do look over lists of donors. Um, sure, but that's like, th- that's not uncommon at all. But if you don't know someone, this on is your what I'm saying. List, yes. you're not going to look at their LinkedIn page and Google. Yes, them. this is what you, I'm you saying. Just, is it's a low ball, it's, right? it's not a very high donation. It was like 130 dollars in the context of a leadership race. He's not going to Google every guy giving him a hundred bucks. Yeah. So all that to say <laughs> that. Like, I think <laughs> this is kind of an odd thing to kick someone out. Of- I- I'm not sad to see the back of Derek Sloan. Don't get me wrong. But the- it-, it seems like an odd place to draw the line. If if we set aside the distaste that a lot of people have for Derek Sloan and just make a hypothetical example where a candidate anywhere on the political spectrum um, gets a donation from an unsavory, an unsavory, uh, unsavory individual there you go um (laughs) third time's the charm the the odds of that donation being caught in any way and not just you know 100 bucks um flowing into that you know leadership candidate or your party candidate's coffers sort of unknown to them is fairly high i just think of how i phrase that fairly high (laughs) um that they would not be aware unless it were like a really big name right yeah um and so you're right if if there was the desire to make a defense of this the defense would be you know the donation is unacceptable we've refunded that donation and we made a donation for five thousand dollars to you know rainbow rainbow railroad or whatever the cause is that's you know anathema to the beliefs of the individual that you're yes. you're trying to push back against yeah no but um, and, and tellingly sloan of course did not do that <laughs> well yeah not yeah. so much about sloan but about the party's reaction here and this is the moment where there can't be any equivocation about how um conservative party leadership responds to this type of situation which is where you're seeing now the impetus for the hammer to be dropped immediately and as firmly as humanly possible and i think that is the good and right reaction um that i mean for more reasons than just political optics but this is the response the party's going to need to have if it's going to have a hope to distinguish itself from what's happening south of the border um and to remain um appealing to gta voters because at the end of the day um they are on mclean's top 50 powerful people in canada um and you know need to be kept in mind at all times yes uh yeah no i i think it's that will be definitely like 
Look, I, I think that there are definitely people in the conservative coalition who are, are pretty Trumpy uh, on a variety of, of kind of measures. And I think that stuff is very politically toxic at an electoral level for um, the conservatives out of the kind of heartland areas where they're not really at risk anyway. Um, so I can certainly see why they're going to make cracking down on that a priority, and I can certainly see why the liberals are going to make uh, intense scrutiny of anything that smacks of it a priority for them as well. Uh, yeah, you, you, so you mentioned Heartland, and in speaking to Heartland conservatives, the one concern that I think is overblown, I think it'll be um, borne out in the next election result, is the risk that they have in the Heartland to some sort of insurgent if, what 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 did they rename themselves? Maverick Party or something? Um, that I I don't I think it'll be a little bit of a Derek Filderbrand Freedom Conservative Party thing. Where, Man, what is it with Derek's? Jesus Christ, you it's a real problem out there. I I think it'll be a Derek Filderbrand like gets two percent of the vote or whatever he got. I I don't recall. Um, but I think a lot of people there are factoring the Maverick Party far too heavily into their calculations yeah um, and i certainly out, out of concern for the wexeters etc yeah i i don't see that going anywhere maybe yeah. i'll look very silly but I, I i i tend to agree that i don't really think that's going anywhere no i i think insurgent political parties like maxime bernier's for instance um turns out often can't win a seat despite having a former um you know a tier cabinet minister um uh, yeah, well, and also in the case of, in the case of the People's Party, like as much press as you can imagine, like you know, yes. ever and still, he went for and still he's yeah. you know he's doing the Quebec snowbird thing and he's still getting <laughs> press on that, um, yes. despite not being a politician anymore. I mean, he still calls himself a politician, but he's not elected, so he's not a politician yes. in my eyes. There you go. Um, yes. Uh, well, we actually didn't end up talking. Well, yeah, because you said this was going to take two minutes, and then actually no. And now we have ten minutes to talk about whatever the last subject on the agenda was, which was vaccines slash COVID. So, uh... well, that's important. <laughs> yeah. So the the first thing is is the the person on the beach there escaped our ire once again as we circled back around. But now we're back to the guy on the beach, and uh, he's in big trouble now. Uh, so obviously, over the holidays. A, a reasonably significant amount of politicians uh, went on holidays out of the country, um, discretionary vacations and the like. Uh, turned out to not look very good in, in, the, in most of those cases. Really? Uh, yeah. So Ontario's finance minister resigned. Um, and it's actually, I think it's very interesting to look at the difference between what happened in the Ford government, what happened in the Kenny government here. Um it's actually the opposite of what I would have expected. Uh, Doug Ford, to me, is a, um, a a fundamentally a weak premier who is kind of along for the ride, wishes he would be uh, like clipping big novelty ribbons at openings of things, and is kind of just happy to do on a policy level what like the sort of handful of ideologues around the cabinet table and the premier's office want to do and also what the donors want to do and as long as those two things don't come into any big conflict he's he's more or less happy um this has been an unpleasant year for him because he's had to do stuff uh which is kind of the nightmare of any sort of politician that's elected kind of on his platform of you know we're gonna upset the gravy train and then not worry too much about what happens to the tracks after that um, on, on his platform eh? 
Well, yeah, I would say probably his. We didn't have much of Do you have the... a copy of that platform? No, I don't. Per, per chance? No, I'm just, it's a joke about him not having had a platform when he... Did they not have one at all? Oh, yeah, they ended up not, didn't they? Yeah, that's Yeah, right. there was maybe something. There's a little, not, like, a pro forma not any, thing, yeah. Not anything of substance. No, the book of your baby. Uh, but, yeah, all that to say that I, I think that it was interesting to me that his government, which I think is largely feckless and blown by the winds, uh, especially in this crisis, was very quick to realize the enormous political liability that this created of his finance minister vacationing in the Caribbean um, while the province was locked down and immediately uh, fired him, uh, summoning him well, to Toronto first and then firing him, I guess, which is a bit of yeah, a bummer. Tough. I imagine he, he may as well have just stayed at that point. And the reaction of the Kenny government to several of their MLAs and cabinet ministers, or I guess it was just one cabinet minister. Correct me if I'm wrong. One, Tracy Allard. Yes. Um, one cabinet minister, I believe. Yeah. Right. And several MLAs who are out of province uh, in, in Mexico and Hawaii, variously. In, including my, my own Fort McMurray MLA, Tani Yao, who could not be reached in Mexico for several he was, days. He was disconnecting. Uh, a man yeah. off the grid. I get it. Um but the Kenny government's reaction is very different in that they dithered for a few days on doing anything. And then when the heat got really, really, really bad, they event- they finally said, okay, these guys are out of caucus slash out of cabinet. Um, Does that, that surprise inter- you, though? It because... did. Here's why. is because the Kenny government, to me, is there to get stuff done. And if you are an impediment to getting things done, if you are the distraction, if you are the story, this was always the instinct in the Harper government, as far as I could tell is if you are the story when you shouldn't be, you're you're out. You're gone. Um, so, like, I think the people, in a sense, are much more disposable in a government that has goals um, than I in disa- a government that is not about doing stuff. I disagree with you. So, and, yeah, I'm interested to hear why and where you disagree. So, one, you alluded to um, Doug Ford, who genuinely does have more of a populist bent than Kenny does. Yes. Um, being governed more by the winds. And I think that's accurate. And I think that Ford was quick to pick up which way the winds were blowing um, in terms of popular sentiment around Ron Phillips' uh, vacation to St. Bart's. Um, and once the winds were very clearly blowing, then he decided it was time to pull the plug immediately. Kenny, on the other hand, is someone whose political career has been... Um, made by pushing through adversity um, and remaining steadfast, um, unchanging, unbending. Yes. Um, I think so there's I think a, that's what you saw in Alberta. In this there's case, a brittleness. political detriment. Yes, there is definitely a brittleness that, that says to him, when people are mad, they are wrong and I am right. Which I think what, yeah. Ford, Ford is like, please don't be mad at me. I'll do whatever you say. But by all accounts, Tracy Allard um, is one of the better cabinet or was one of the better cabinet ministers in the Kenny government as well, Um, as well as on the COVID file, which, of course, played into her dismissal in positive and negative ways. Um, But perhaps one of the reasons why they were slower to dismiss her. Um, The the Kenny story is... A little more complicated. Uh, let's, let's compare that for just a second, though, because Rod Phillips was the finance Is the finance minister. I, yes, yes. I, I know that, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not looking past that. But at the same time, I'm happy to look past that. Um, 
Yeah. There was also the, the weird denials of like, oh, I don't know where he is. Like the finance manager can just get on a plane and leave and not tell anyone. <laughs> so some of the sort of, I mean, I guess it's not parliamentary procedurist, but procedurist nonetheless. Um, we'll note that it is typical for the locations of cabinet ministers to be fairly tightly coordinated and tracked. I don't. I've never worked at the provincial level. I understand this broadly to be the case at the provincial level. I don't know to what granularity it's done. Um, at the federal level, it is to a reasonable amount um, coordinated by, alternatively, the GOC, the uh, government of can't. Government, government operations. Oh, government Center. operations center. I was getting there. Um, the government operations center. We gawk. The <laughs> yes, long story there. Um, PCO and uh, the Whip's office. Obviously, not when Parliament's not in session. The Whip's office doesn't really matter as much. Um, to what extent this happens at the provincial level? Um, ostensibly, it does, and ostensibly, you have to designate a uh, a stand-in when you leave the province or or or, or otherwise unable to perform your duties, uh, special, particular emphasis on ministers who have emergency duties. Um, but in a government such as the Ford government, is this sort of procedural nuance followed to the letter? I'd be willing to bet it's perhaps not, um, but it seems to be that the reporting um, after the fact now is that Doug Ford was perhaps aware of his location in advance of it becoming sort of public knowledge. Yes. But all that so. to say, yeah, like I, I think they realize, I think there is more of an instinct to dig in, uh, dig in their heels and sort of continue in the face of opposition in the Kenny government. Um, it's interesting because, yeah, I think there's kind of two competing ways of running a kind of ideological government. And that's, I think, the worst way, which is when you you always dig in, even when it's a huge political liability. Uh, rather than making individuals expendable, uh, which I think is probably the smarter way to do that. Generally. And, and to be clear, let's build on the second point you just made there, the smarter way to do that. The Kenny government is suffering immensely. Yeah, this is not popular, for sure. Um, on this and on a number of other well, they are seemingly... Getting ideological measures, the yes. NDP are now leading and polling in Alberta. Yes. Um, which is somewhat bewildering to anyone who has followed like I mean Jason Kenny basically said he was gonna dynamite the Rockies the other day, so I think uh for sixty five thousand dollars or something stupid. So it's just a lot of the NDP's (laughs) success last go round was attributed somewhat to luck um and to hatred of the PCs. Kenny left federal politics, made it like a five year mission to claim the premiership of Alberta against somewhat incredible odds he fought his way through a very resistant uh pc party united the two political parties won the premiership away from rachel notley and since then has seen his popularity tank um largely self-inflicted on on a a number of self-inflicted you know, measures that the government has been rather embattled um, in particularly the past year, uh, but somewhat before that, I think it was a government that had hedged a lot politically 
on doing a lot of unpopular things very early on in its tenure and then sort of writing the ship and then being able to do more politically popular things in the years approaching election year. Which is very standard. Um, That's, that is a very yeah. standard playbook for any government. Yeah. But the nature of COVID has upended that somewhat and it has exacerbated the situation and made him very, very unpopular. And, you know, the election is fast approaching at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, no, I, I'm, I, it's kind of funny because if you had asked me a year ago, who's more likely to get reelected, Jason Kenney or Doug Ford? I would have said Jason Kenney, no doubt. Uh, now, I think Doug Ford's chances are probably better. Uh, yeah, is, I, I think, yeah, I think that's right. Um, although there are, you know, certainly skeptics that either of them will still be in their seats come. Uh, yes, yeah, so from uh, victims of an internal process. Internal coups, but I cannot imagine anyone internally cooing Jason Kenny in any effective way. I could see it for Ford. I have a hard time seeing it for Kenny for the reason that he is, he's not a weak guy, right? I think you can really only internal coup someone without burning down the whole party with you if it's a weak leader. Um, I think if, if Kenny goes, he takes the ship with him. Which he might be willing to do. Who knows? I don't know. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's, I mean, unless he is somehow gracious in his exit, um, I think it's, you know, he is in a very challenging situation politically now. And it'll be very interesting to see. Yeah, and I think, I think the Alberta NDP actually deserves a lot of credit for capitalizing really well on it. Um, it is not an obvious thing to make inroads against a popular first term government um and they have really effectively um and i yeah like politically like they're they're really pretty effective so hats off hats off to rachel notley and, and team notley in edmonton there uh for the doing a very difficult job quite well by by all all metrics i and p- people who have listened to the show know that i am not usually the first to say that i i am the world's biggest fan but uh yeah i think they actually have done a a very good job in in opposition well there you go um yeah i mean my my number one piece of advice for them would be to uh sever from the federal party but uh you know i that's that should be a live question for them um in terms of how much that brand uh resonates in alberta but other than that we'll see Indeed, we shall. Uh, I think we don't really have time to talk about vaccines, to be honest. That's fair. We, I mean, it will be a issue for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So uh, we'll, um, we'll be back to that. So yeah, we can certainly address that on the next uh, the yes. next podcast. All that, all, all we're going to say on on vaccines right now is everyone is in a a finger pointing standoff of of whose fault is it that we don't have more vaccines right now. Yes, or that and the cover, people aren't being vaccinated, I guess, depending on how you're looking at it. The Fed's pointing at the provinces, and the provinces pointing at the Feds, but it seems like, you know, hiccups in logistics um, stalled things initially. Um, but as those are ironed out, increasingly, um, it's going to be a supply side issue from the federal government. Um, and we will... Based, uh, on, based on suppliers. We will talk next time, I think, in more depth about kind of what the federal approach has been on vaccines and whether that was 
ill-advised or not and uh what they're saying about it um can i take a minute to mention a uh, yes a friend yes. of the pod please do please do um so it's a uh i guess not organization but a company um called polytrack um spelt p-o-l-i t-r-a-q and to be clear this is not a uh, a sponsorship um of of any sort but merely a shout out to a uh, a friend of the pod um which is a government relations uh management platform so a lot of government relations is done sort of ad hoc on word and excel sheets and things along those lines um where a lot of other industries seem to use crms much more effectively um so this is made by someone who had been in the government relations space who got interested in the use of CRMs, which is sort of like databases for managing interactions. Um, a lot of CRMs like Salesforce and stuff like that are made for sort of the sales environment, which is a little different than the government relations environment. Um, so it's sort of like a made in Canada CRM for the government relations space. Um, and with that, I would just encourage you to check out their website. Um, I've, I've used, you know, a variety of CRMs in the, the GR space and, uh, they are always incredibly helpful when you actually get to use one and get to leverage it in terms of tracking and reporting and things along those lines. So just shout out to a friend of the pod. There we go. Um, yeah, no, I think that'll, that'll do it for us in that case this evening. Uh, thank you once again for listening to this, this fine episode of the boys in short pants. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in style uh, soon enough. And what uh, what bourbon did you enjoy while we recorded oh, yes. this final episode? I was having uh, an Elijah Craig, which is lovely. I really like it. I've heard very good things about Elijah Craig. I would say um, for like your kind of mid priced uh, mid priced bourbon, I, I wouldn't even say it's super. Well, yeah, okay, mid priced bourbon's probably fair. It's very very good. I think it's got the most character of any kind of that tier. I like Maker's Mark a lot as kind of a like I'll happily mix that and I'll happily drink that. Uh, I would say I wouldn't mix the Elijah Craig. I think it's a little, it's it's a little more particular. Uh, I, I feel a little bad mixing it because it's very tasty. Uh, as you should, as you know, my wife mixed the lovely scotch that you had uh, given me for my birthday. Oh no! No, no! You, you've heard this before into a, a whiskey sour. I believe it was made into. Oh, I um, think you did tell me that. Oh, a, that's a bad, grievous. a terrible. That wouldn't even be sour. good. Yeah, that would be a, that would make for a terrible <laughs> whiskey sour. My God. So I'm I'm having to do some boundary setting around the expense of alcohol <laughs> the, the sipping alcohols versus the mixing alcohols Indeed. well yes uh elijah craig also did not pay us for this but uh it is a very nice bourbon <laughs> yes uh, as much as we would have enjoyed a sponsorship from a microbrew we've yet to receive any or, outreach or large or large international distillery also would be totally fine well no actually yeah um please do not try to give us money we will not take it <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, that's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.